0: Good morning, it's Monday the 26th of February and this is Govind Raj broadcasting from Mumbai, India's financial capital. I'm sure you knew this, but if you didn't, we do have an extra day in February this year. So Thursday is February 29th and Friday is March the 1st. Our top stories and themes for the day. Brokerages are bullish on India, but downgrades on leading sectors like banking have begun. Indian oil refiners are facing dwindling margins as cost of crude goes up. The government releases household consumption data after more than a decade, spends on food are down. Is the government going to be in the business of doing business for a long time?
1: This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj.
0: The downgrades are coming, even as markets are high. Well, the last week was in some ways unexpectedly another record-setting one. Unexpected because there are no specific bullish signs, or at least specific to India, in recent weeks apart from a few bullish investment banking reports, which are of course now par for the course, and of course continued earnings growth. Last week, the Nifty 50 ended at 22,212, a record after hitting fresh records on five consecutive trading sessions during the week. The BSC Sensex closed down 15 points at 73,142. On Wall Street, it was NVIDIA, the chipmaker, all the way after it rose 16% on Thursday and briefly crossed the $2 trillion market capitalization mark. That day, it added about $277 billion in market capitalization, which was higher than the gain of $197 billion from Facebook parent Meta earlier in the month. Now, these gains are no doubt spectacular, but the level and value of swings is also worrying because, remember, it can happen both ways. The S&P 500 touched a record 2 of 5,100 on Thursday, but then held, as did the rest of the markets on Friday. Federal Reserve Bank of New York President John Williams said the economy has headed in the right direction and it will likely be appropriate to cut rates later this year, according to Bloomberg. Which is, of course, not saying all that much, but it's definitely a revisiting of a possible deadline for cutting interest rates. something the markets have been watching and waiting for quite feverishly, if I could say that. Now, if you take a step back, most world markets are rising steadily, including Japan's Nikkei 225, which hit a 34-year high last week. Now, think about how old you were or where you were in 1989, particularly if you were in financial markets, just to get a sense on how markets can or cannot move. Things are changing for Japan, or perceived to be at least, as the feeling is that the country's deflation era has now ended and companies are showing strong profit growth. Now, unlike before, there is an interesting India connection because many global funds are now moving money out of China and investing in Japan and India. This would not have happened in the past because Japan was in the developed country basket of global funds while India was and continues to be in the emerging markets basket. India is now attracting increasingly, that is, funds from the non-emerging basket as well. Meanwhile, while all investment banks and brokerages have been steadily putting out bullish India reports and we've been faithfully reporting them, they are getting as their job presumably demands them to be selective about industries where they feel prices have run up. I will come to total foreign portfolio investment numbers in a moment. So first, brokerage CLSA or Credit Leone has put a sell on oil marketing companies like HPCL, BPCL and the Indian Oil Corporation, says the business standard. CLSA analysts feel that oil refiners, that's in India, are pricing in much higher than historical marketing margins and a notable premium to the global peer average EV or earnings value by EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, tax, and depreciation multiple. Or put differently, the financial metrics for Indian refiners are now looking expensive compared to their peers globally. A lack of retail fuel price changes in the last two years has clearly exposed the vulnerability of profits for these oil marketing companies, according to CLSA. Now, While it does not appear that there could be cuts in pump prices of petrol and diesel despite elections on the horizon, CLSA warns that given the government's focus on fiscal consolidation, it may look at avenues to raise fuel taxes post-elections. Which means that if fuel prices increase further, consumption could come down. Now, those apart, large global refining capacity additions may soon raise doubts over the continuation of current high margins. Another report by Care Edge has pointed out, as we've been doing so in the core report as well, that state-run refiners will face a shift in fortunes once cheap Russian oil becomes more expensive and less accessible squeezing profits for the refiners that had been benefiting from Moscow's war in Ukraine because India was buying directly from Russia and getting around the sanctions that the west had imposed on russian crude imports now this is already happening as we've been pointing out for some kinds of crude where prices have been going up and more on crude shortly more interesting and in some ways lesser expected downgrades have come from goldman sachs for india's banking sector now the reasons provide an insight into the overall state of the financial system in the context of retail savers and spenders as well As, of course, the bank's ability to make money off them. Last week, I'd replayed a part of Goldman Sachs' interaction with HDFC Bank CEO Shashidhar Jagadishan, where he spoke essentially about how his bank would not go for high-risk lending, which could potentially deliver higher returns, and more importantly, about expanding their branch network so as to help raise more deposits. Yes, you do need more physical branches to help raise more deposits, as it turns out. Now, Goldman has downgraded ICICI Bank and the State Bank of India to neutral from buy, while it has retained a buy on HDFC Bank. It has upgraded Bajaj Finance from a neutral to a buy, though Bajaj Finance is an NBFC and not a bank. This is also interesting because Bajaj Finance's businesses have been somewhat constrained by recent Reserve Bank of India strictures. Clearly, the interaction with the HDFC folks has convinced Goldman Sachs about the merits of branch expansion and its more fundamental strategy of business growth. Goldman says the Goldilocks period for the banking sector may be coming to an end, referring to a phase of strong growth and strong profitability. The larger problem that Goldman highlights is, of course, the fact that share of bank deposits as a percentage of household financial assets is falling. It was 45% last year and higher the year before. And incrementally, which is right now, only 35% is going towards bank deposits. Now, this is not too difficult to believe if you look at your own behavior, because it's quite likely that you're putting less money in bank deposits and more, let's say, in mutual funds. And then bank deposits are also facing competition from government small savings schemes, which are now 20% of total deposit pools, and also their interest rates are higher than bank term deposits. Okay, we spoke of India and China being in a somewhat similar club. Now, let's put some things in context now. Foreign investors have invested more than 18,500 crores in debt markets in this month, all thanks to the upcoming inclusion of Indian government bonds in a JP Morgan index. Now, this is over and above the 19,800 crore invested in January, making that the highest monthly flow in more than six years. So that's 18 plus 19,000, so that's almost 37,000 crore in two months. However, on the other hand, foreign investors are net sellers in equity at about 424 crores from equity so far this month and 25,700 crores in January. So that's almost 26,000 crores of net selling till date in 2024 in equities. Billions are expected to flow into debt this year from overseas, though, while the broader equity outlook is positive. For all the reasons that we pointed out, the specifics are not clear. And like I pointed out earlier, some of the downgrades have begun in specific sectors like oil refining or energy and, of course, banking. So who is buying then? Well, you and me via mutual funds and even directly in increasing numbers, all of which makes the market direction a little difficult to predict on a micro basis. We should also make you more of a long term investor if you really want to play it carefully. And speaking of long-term investing, a word on Berkshire Hathaway, the biggest of them all. Berkshire reported a big rise in operating earnings in the fourth quarter thanks to huge gains in the insurance business while its cash pile grew to record levels. Berkshire now has $167 billion in cash in the fourth quarter of last year, a record level that surpasses the $157 billion it held in the prior quarter. India's crude oil imports hit a new record. Oil prices are now down over the weekend under $82 a barrel at around $81.62 a barrel, which does make things a little more stable compared to the previous week. We spoke of the pressures oil refining companies are facing on the margin front because they can only make more money if the cost of crude they import is cheaper or remains cheap. India's crude oil imports rose to a monthly record in Jan after the Red Sea shipping crisis delayed the December arrival of cargoes from the Americas, according to Bloomberg. India's oil imports have hit about 5.2 million barrels per day in Jan, up 17% from December and 3.5% higher than in the corresponding month a year earlier, according to data from Bloomberg. An official with one Indian refining company told Bloomberg that some cargoes it was scheduled to receive in December had been delayed until January and in some cases they had to pay more because freight and insurance costs have shot up because of tensions around the Red Sea and the Suez Canal route. Before I come back to crude, the reason all of this is important is because India is an active trader and many of its goods, which are being exported or imported, are facing similar challenges, which is either delays because of Red Sea tensions or higher freight costs, which may have shot up suddenly because of these very same tensions. Now, back to crude. India's refiners are buying more from the Middle East, including Iraq, to avoid disruption from the delays and make up for the diversion of Russian light-sweet so-called oil, which we spoke of last week, supplies of which were hit by payment woes and tougher Western sanctions, according to Bloomberg. Indians are spending less on food, latest consumption data. Indians are spending less on food, particularly staples like rice and wheat and more on discretionary items such as processed food as well as durables like televisions and fridges, according to the latest Household Consumption Expenditure Survey released late on Saturday, reported Reuters. The survey says that average rural consumer spending has risen to Rs. 3,773 rupees a month per person for the 12 months through July from 1,400. 30 rupees in the previous survey. Now, the previous survey was in 2011-12, which is more than 10 years ago. Urban spending rose from 2,630 rupees then to 6,459 rupees now. The first bit of the context is that the government pulled back numbers that it had released in 2017 on the ground that they were data quality issues. The government was accused of suppressing the data at that point because it apparently showed weak consumption trends. The larger issue, of course, is data availability and data integrity for India, which of course does not look very good in the eyes of investors anyway. So now the data is out. So hopefully this and other data points will be released on schedule, including the census, which was last held in 2011 February and should have been held in February 2021, but was not because of COVID, but has not found a date later, at least so far. So coming back to the household survey, it also says that spending on food fell to 46 percent of monthly consumption for rural consumers from nearly 53 percent in 2011-12, while in urban areas it fell to 39 percent from 43 percent. Now, the figures at this point are not fully squaring with other data we are seeing and could be a slightly distorted here and there somewhat by, for example, a free food grain program from the government. The survey also says Indians are spending less on cereals, including wheat and rice and pulses, but more on beverages, refreshments and processed food. This could obviously be true, but could also suggest a shift away from expensive cereals and pulses, which have seen very high rates of inflation in more than a year that we've been following and which may now be cooling right now, but they're still high. Pulses inflation, by the way, which is dals, is around 20 percent now or close to 20 percent, by the way. Consumers are also spending more on conveyance, consumer services and durable goods like television and fridges. Now, compared to 13 years ago, just to round up, average monthly per capita consumption expenditure for Indian households has risen 33% since 2011-12 and rural India's monthly per capita expenditure has increased 40%. The estimates of this survey are based on data collected from about 260,000 households, of which about 155,000 households were in rural areas, and these are spread across the country. A detailed report should be out shortly. I reached out to Ashok K. Bhattacharya, Editorial Director of Business Standard, and I began by asking him how he was reading the results of the latest consumption
1: survey. There are two, three points I would like to make. Uh, one is that clearly the composition of uh, private consumption expenditure, household consumption expenditure, has undergone a significant change with policy implications on the way you you measure your inflation rates. For the first time in the, in the last I think twenty twenty five years, your consumption share of food items have come down below fifty, even in rural India, even in rural India the consumption share for food items is now at 46% so that to my mind is a very significant point it will have policy implications for the way you frame the consumer price index and how they're going to impact that's number one number two the top 5% of consumption expenditure you know, the household spenders and the bottom 5 of the household expenditure that gap has widened in a sense that the top five has grown at a faster rate than the bottom five. So I think the top half of the households in this country are doing much better in terms of spending than the bottom 5%. The third point is the sharp variation in the consumption expenditure patterns in across the country, wherein uh, you see a state like uh, Delhi or, or, or a unitary like Chandigarh, That level of expenditure is sharply much more than what happens in a place like Chhattisgarh or a place like uh, Jharkhat. So I think the differences are something that need to be taken note of.
0: So now, if you were to look at it over this 12-year period, now obviously expenditure has doubled and tripled between rural and urban. So what do you make of that? Is that a significant jump
1: or is it a jump which is normal given everything else? If If we take the average increase, it is not significant. Average annual in these last 11 years, if you take the rural segments around 13 or 14 percent and if you take the urban segment, it is around 15 or 16 percent. So this is the on the current nominal prices. But if you take the 2011-12 prices, the growth is even lower. So I don't think they are very huge increase at the pace of this expenditure. But certainly some data is better than no data. I mean, had you rightly pointed out that there was no such data since 2011-12. So, that is the first data that we are getting in the last 12 years or so.
0: How is this triangulating with other data points that we are seeing on consumption?
1: This is exactly the point I was uh, trying to make. That it essentially establishes once again that India is growing at different paces at different levels. I mean, if you look at the top 5% and the top bottom 5%, the growth rates are different. There are some states which are doing very well and some states which are doing very badly. So this duality of India, controversially is called the k shaped performance of any economy, it continues and is something that needs to be closely watched, looked for and necessary policy correctives need to be applied.
0: So this survey also, does it equally highlight the inequality
1: then? You know, we are still waiting for the full detailed explanatory paper that is yet to be released. But this, uh, what is released by the government, brings out the numbers. It does not really draw, kind of, either make an, an analytical comment, it only brings out those numbers. So we have to see that what kind of lessons the government itself draws, the National Statistical Office draws from these numbers.
0: Ashok K. Bhattacharya is going to be staying with us for another story that's coming up. The private sector has slowed down on investments and the government has stepped up. Almost since time immemorial, since that's how long it seems, financial journalists like yours truly have asked the question how long and even whether the government should be in the business of doing business. And more so in a developing country like India, where the government's time and effort is arguably better spent on allocating resources from a well-tuned private sector, which generates those resources. Successive governments in India have, however, demonstrated that India likes to do both. A recent column by Ashok Bhattacharya in Business Standard points out that this month's interim budget showed that capital investments to be made by as much as 169 public sector units, including the Indian Railways in the current year, are up 15% over such expenditure in the last year. 10 years ago, there were 147 such entities whose capital outlays in 2013 14 were estimated at about 3.3 trillion rupees. The broader point is that the current government run by the NDA has contributed significantly higher amounts for equity infusion into public sector units compared to the Manmohan Singh government or the UPA in a similar period of 10 years. Now, This is contrary to the general perception of how the two governments dealt with the public sector. The NDA or the National Democratic Alliance by the way was seen to be focused more on disinvestment and privatisation while refraining from providing any special financial support to PSUs, as Ashok Bhattacharya points out. The reality, he says, is quite different. The share of government equity for PSUs in the total public sector capital outplay was almost 16% during the Manmohan Singh years, but it has almost doubled to 30% during the 10 years of the Narendra Modi government. I reached out to Ashok K. and I began by asking him why this was happening and how investors, including those sitting outside India, should view the government's increasing role in
1: running businesses? Well, I think what is happening with the NDA government right now, uh, there are two or three things that are happening uh, simultaneously. At one level, it's a post-COVID world where the NDA government recognizes that the private sector's investment capacity is fairly limited. And to make good that shortfall, so to say, the NDA government is clearly pumping in more money through the capex route in the budget and, and where else through, but else the public sector undertakings. So you will see the four broad areas of Indian Railways, National Highway Authority of India and uh, various infrastructure sector companies. So that is what is what is happening right now because the NDA government realizes that private sector capacity is limited. The second point is that its own privatization policy has not really picked up space. Uh, except the privatization of Air India in 2019 or 20, it has not been able to privatize, complete the privatization deal of any other company in the last 10 years. So it is conscious of its inability to have accepted the principle of government getting out of the business of business. And the third thing that is happening is that the sheer size of the infrastructure deficit in this country is quite uh, daunting and this government recognizes that the only way you can bridge this deficit at a faster pace, the required pace would be to pump in money, capital into the sectors which can execute infrastructure projects at good time. So therefore, the India government has seen some sort of a revival of its public sector undertakings with equity infusion. But the problem is, when you infuse more equity in the public sector, it should result in greater efficiency and greater performance. Unfortunately, the public sector undertakings in the last 10 years has not contributed to higher resource generation compared to what is to happen earlier. So that is the worry point in this approach. Unless the entire public sector management structure is revamped, the ownership patterns are changed. I don't see that changing. And therefore, the government's plan to infuse more equity into public sector in the long run will probably boomerang on the economy.
0: Right. And the contrast to this in some ways is the way public sector stocks have been doing and very well, obviously, including companies which have come with IPOs in the last few years. I'm talking about government PSUs have done phenomenally for investors. So is that perhaps giving the government uh, the feeling that, you know, maybe they are on the right track here? This is the RNE
1: at a time when the public sector stocks are doing well because public sector companies are turning the corner. This is the time they should have exited. But unfortunately, the Niti Ayog paper that had identified the strategic sectors where the government should continue to stay and the areas from which the government should should get out, exit. I don't think that paper is going to be implemented soon, at least not so far. We have not seen any idea, no indication of whether the government is serious about it. Probably after the elections, the government that comes to power may be a little bold and implements some of the ideas, the good ideas that have been outlined in the niti Aayog paper.
0: If you were to look at how companies have been doing, and they've obviously been doing well, and then there's the private sector, which is also playing in some of those areas, if, if you take steel or energy, what does this mean for policy making? You know, So if I'm someone, let's say, sitting outside India and investing in India, how should I be looking at this, I don't know if the dichotomy
1: is the right word, but this matrix? There is a dichotomy because the large government sector company is operating in an area the chances of that competitive environment getting compromised a bit are there. So, therefore, if you are, let us say, you to invest in the steel sector, if you know there is a strong public sector steel company, then you, you might feel that there would be some sort of special treatment given to that public sector company or it may have some access to certain capital, resources, raw materials, which is preferential. So, I don't think, principle, this is a good idea because even if you cannot privatize it, the government should seriously consider how the government, the political leadership particularly, can distance itself from the running of these public sector companies. What you're saying is a
0: desirable outcome or a desirable path, but that's not likely to happen as you yourself said. So, how is this likely to evolve then, in at least in the next immediate few
1: years? My sense is that the public sector companies will continue to expand and grow because I don't see the private sector coming in and fill the demand, meet the demand that the economy clearly faces and sees. So I see the government, public sector companies continue to grow, expand, probably with, with the cost to the economy would be less efficiency, less competitiveness and less uh, productivity gains.
0: So now to come back to the first point you mentioned, AKB, which is that the government is doing this in their wisdom or in its wisdom because private investment has slowed down, particularly in the post-COVID world. So the logical way forward is that private investment should be incentivized to obviously go up and it is in its own way. But do you see that balancing out in some ways?
1: I mean, do you see private investment coming back or coming to the level where... There are early signs of private sector investments coming back, but that pace of recovery in the private sector investment is fairly slow, even though the capacity utilization level in the private sector are going up. So, it's going to be a long haul. And my reading is that the public sector will continue a major focus area for this government in the next few years.
0: Right. AKB, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at at feedbackatthecore.in and thank you once again for listening.